Hi, welcome to Auckland AV. My name's Rowan, and one of the pastors here. Let me ask you today, have you ever noticed how large a role emotions play in our lives? So much of what we do and how we view life is expressed with regard to our emotions, how we feel. It's been a good day if we end up feeling happy. It's a bad day, perhaps we end up feeling sad. At the threat of danger, we experience fear. When we've been let down, we feel anger or maybe disgust. Psychologists differ on the names and numbers of our core emotions, but they all agree that we have them. The most popular view suggests there are five core emotions. Joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. If you think about it, much of our lives are spent either being stuck in an emotional state or trying to get back to where we once were or where we'd like to be. Just think about how much time and energy you put into either maintaining your emotional state or trying to fix it. Well, as we get to the next passage in John's Gospel, we find nearly every single one of these emotional states expressed. And it's one of the things that I love about the Bible. Right? The people we meet in it are real. They're not all knights in shining armor type of people with perfect lives and pristine gardens, but they're broken and weak human beings, just like me and my hunch is you too. That's because the Bible isn't a self-help book or a guide to living a better life but a historical account of a man who claims to be God. And what happens when normal people like you and me encounter him? It changes the way we think and feel about everything. We're going to see today that in encountering Jesus, he moves people from fear to joy, from war to peace, from doubt to belief, and from spectators to star players. So come with me and see John chapter 20 and find out why Jesus does this. Let's look at the first point, from fear to joy. Come with me, John chapter 20, verse 19. When it was the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. For three years, Jesus had taught his disciples. He'd been with them and, and explaining who he was and what he'd come to do. He'd healed the sick, he'd raised the dead. They were convinced he was God's promised king, come to lead God's people. And they were the inner circle. Pretty exciting stuff, right? These were exciting times for them. But now Jesus had died. They'd seen the Jewish leaders have him nailed to the cross with his crime nailed above his head, king of the Jews. That's what he thought he was. They had seen the spear thrust into his side, confirming he was dead. And so in a mixture of what would probably be anger and disgust, their hopes and expectations for this future king and their place in his kingdom had been shattered. All sorts of doubt crept in. Was he who he said he was? He said he would die, but none of them believed him. Betrayal and sadness, anger and fear. All those emotions find these followers of Jesus cooped up in a house as we get to our passage today with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, probably afraid that they'd find out who the disciples were, that they had some relation to Jesus and they'd want to stamp them out as well. The only hint of hope these disciples had was from two of them, Peter and John. John, who wrote this very account that we're reading. They'd gone to the tomb earlier that morning and they had claimed that they had seen Jesus alive. Now, let me ask you today, if you'd seen your friend killed, speared by Roman professionals and placed in a tomb, what's the likelihood you're going to believe your mates who think he's alive two and a half days later? Well, the disciples were afraid. 
But in this encounter that John recounts for us here in John 20 in the second half, we see their fear turn to joy. Look with me, John 20 verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Their fear, right, turns into joy and you can totally understand it. They're ecstatic because their friend has come back from the dead. But if you look carefully, there's an even greater reason Jesus turns their fear into joy. It's because he's moved them from war to peace, from war to peace. Peace be with you, Jesus says. Now, what is with that? Who says that? Well, apparently some Jews still do today. It's a common Jewish phrase, kind of like saying, hey, but here it means so much more than just hello. If you've ever had someone uh, that you love get in a fight with you, uh, you'll know the feeling of being estranged. It feels like you're, you're at war with them. There's relational tension. If any of you are married, you might have experienced that in your marriage like I have with Sarah. Sure, marriage has its ups and downs, but there are some times that Sarah and I feel like we're at war. Sarah's done something to me, or more likely I've done something to her. And there's this coldness that can kind of develop, a refusal to help or make any effort towards the other person. You're at war, at least until I work out what I've done wrong and apologize and come and sort the relationship out. Well, how much more so these imperfect disciples toward the perfect Jesus? People, these disciples who are pretending to be God, when the real God turned up, can you imagine it? Thinking that they were in control. They'd wronged Jesus and they'd wronged the true and living God. But Jesus turns up to these friends who just denied him and announces peace. And I think there are four different types of peace that Jesus announces that comes through here. The first one is peace between the disciples and Jesus. Though the disciples had rejected him and deserted him at the cross and didn't trust his word, he still comes to them as they are and calls him his friends. There's this relational restoration between them and Jesus. Well, that's the first one, peace between them and Jesus. But secondly, Jesus brings peace between the disciples and God. That's why God the Father sent Jesus in the first place, so that God's justice and wrath could be satisfied, poured out on the Son instead of the sinner. At the cross, the Father makes peace with those who've rejected Him. For those who trust in what Jesus did in dying in their place, the war between them and God is over. They've been moved from war to peace. It is finished. God's anger toward them is totally extinguished and consumed in Jesus' death in their place. And there's peace between them and God, but not only peace between them and God, but there's peace between themselves as the disciples. See, to be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to all who are friends with him. There's no hostility vertically or horizontally. There's no grounds for one-upmanship, no racism, no classism, no sexism. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says these words, There is now no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. The relationship between themselves has been brought peace because of what Jesus has done at the cross. And the final area that there's peace is peace between themselves and their soul, peace in themselves. You can imagine their guilty consciences, the memories of rejecting not just their friend, but their God. Well, the great news that 
Jesus, no matter what you have done and no matter how ugly your sin and shame are, has paid the price for all, has a great effect on our consciences and how we feel about ourselves. We've been forgiven. Jesus' final words on the cross just two days earlier, it is finished. Those sins have been paid for, those wrongs that they've done no longer need to be felt guilty for, for he has taken the sins of us all. For those who trust in him, the price is paid. Friends, if you trust in Jesus, if you trust his death was in your place and that he is your king, then forgiveness is yours. And your fear of God and his right and just judgments against what you and I have done and our war with the creator of the universe is finished. And the peace Jesus brings to the disciples is our peace too. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, not only did he appear to them, but he brings peace. And that moves them from fear to joy, from war to peace. Whenever Sarah and I have had a fight and we finally work it out, there's this great sense of release. You've probably experienced it in in sort of relational tension. It's usually because one of us goes out of our way to forgive the other. And that's exactly what Jesus has done here. I want you to notice he doesn't wait for the disciples to make the first move. He doesn't wait for them to clean themselves up, to get their theology right, to become better people, more moral people. Jesus comes to them when they're scared and fearing, locked in a room, afraid that they might be associated with Jesus. They're trying to keep everyone out, but Jesus breaks in. Don't think you need to have your life worked out before Jesus can come to you. Oh no, he takes us as we are, broken, fearful, faithless rebels in need of a saviour. But the great news is, he takes us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. He moves us from doubt to belief. In verse 24, we're introduced to a person and a problem. You see, not all the disciples were there when Jesus appeared in that locked room that day. Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't with them. Now, we're not told why Thomas wasn't there or where he was or what he was doing, just that he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared. Now, Thomas has got a lot of bad press over the years. And the thing that he's most famous for is his lack of belief. You've heard of him probably, Doubting Thomas. That's what we've come to know him as. Now, doubt, if you think about it, can take many forms. Uh, Sometimes we doubt things because we just don't have any information. So I grew up um, riding motorcycles. And on a bike, when you you get to a corner, you you lean the motorcycle to the left or to the right. And as long as you're, you're moving forward, when you lean the bike over, the bike doesn't tip over. This thing called angular momentum stops you from falling to the ground. And one of the things I noticed when I started taking people for rides on bikes was that the first time people jumped on a bike and the first time we hit a corner, they would get freaked out. I'd lean the bike to go around and they'd be like, ah, try and correct it and and, and go the other way. (laughs) Now, it's a rational response, right? If you did that sitting on a chair, you'd, you'd fall off. But once you've got the information that when you're moving forward, the bike won't fall over and that's actually the way you need to turn, well, it changes what you believe and how you behave. Now, sometimes we doubt because we just don't have enough information. We don't know the things like angular momentum. But sometimes we doubt things because we've got preconceived ideas about them. For instance, if you believe that no one religion can be right, it means that if any religion puts forward a view that it's the only way or is actually true, you just, you can't believe it. Or if you hold the view that the miraculous cannot happen, 
You'll actually reject any evidence to the contrary. You won't be a true scientist and report on what you see. A pastor by the name of Tim Keller calls these defeater beliefs. Uh, beliefs that because you hold them to be true, defeat any other evidence to the contrary. They end up trumping everything that we think. Sometimes we doubt because we hold preconceived defeater beliefs. But other times it's got nothing to do with facts or fiction, but because of a thousand little decisions that we make to distance ourselves from the evidence of whatever it is we believe in. Take for instance the husband who's madly in love with his wife on their wedding day. Uh, They fall in love, they get married, they're having a great life, but after five years when things start to get a bit hard, he gets to notice other options around the office. He starts spending more time at work, uh, more time in technology, addicted to his phone and gaming. He slowly finds himself more interested in his colleagues than his wife. A friendship starts up, that turns into a closer friendship, and two or three years later, as children come along, he starts asking himself why he doesn't feel the same chemistry that he did with his wife earlier, and then he starts to doubt if he ever felt it in the first place. And through a thousand little decisions, he starts to question, did I ever really love my wife? Doubt creeps in, like I must have made a mistake, a wrong choice, and he drifts further and further away to the point of deciding to abandon ship. Well, that same thing happens with our faith as well. We start out well, amazed at Jesus, but we slowly drift, never making big steps away from him, just a thousand small ones until we wake up asking, did I ever really believe in the first place? And we rewrite our stories from people who were convinced Jesus was the true and living God that actually, no, I was just dabbling in Christianity. I was just taking a bit of an interest for a few years. I was never actually fully convinced. And so we drift away. It's got nothing to do with evidence or fact, just a thousand little decisions to drift. Well, one other reason that I want to focus on on why doubt creeps in might sound odd, but it's the simple reason that we just haven't had enough sleep. Sometimes we seriously doubt because we're seriously deep sleep deprived. Uh, The physicality of what we're like as humans really does affect the way that we think. So don't be misled into thinking that our doubt always flows from our rational decisions in life. In fact, the science is quite clear that belief and doubt don't always come down to a rational analysis of the facts. In fact, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist professor of evolutionary psychology at New York University, um, his conclusion of the last 20 years of psychological research is that we tend to form our beliefs and even our doubts firstly by intuition, by a gut feel, and then we look for evidence and rational arguments to prop up our initial conclusions. Well, for our friend Thomas, his doubt came from the deepest kind of disappointment. He believed Jesus was the Messiah, the promised King who would come and win Israel's battles like David did and lead them forward as the greatest nation on earth. But now that Jesus has died and all his dreams were crushed, he's distraught. Then one of his closest friends starts speaking and they start saying to him that they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Lord. And you can't blame him for thinking, it's just wishful thinking. You can imagine him, the skeptic, Of course you believe Jesus is alive. You've bet so much of your life on what he said and now it's all been shown to be a fraud. He's dead. Don't give me any of this wishful thinking mumbo jumbo. Get with the reality, except you've been misled. But his friends, the disciples keep on to Thomas. No, no, we have seen him. So half trying to justify himself and half trying to save them from their delusional and wishful thinking, he says in verse 25, 
If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's like, I'll tell you the kind of evidence I need. Not just some stunt double or someone who looks like him. I want evidence that the same body that went into that tomb crucified is the same body that came out. I don't just want any crucified body. I need to see the the rare one with the spear hole in its side. I need to, to touch it, to feel it before I'll believe that could ever have happened. Now, before we get too hard on Thomas, we need to recognize that here is a man who wants to have his faith based on truth. So there's a difference between faith and gullibility. There are some Christians and people from other faith histories who believe every story that they hear. They say, you just got to have faith. You just got to trust as if faith is some sort of commodity that balances out a lack of evidence. But that's not necessarily faith. It's probably just stupidity or gullibility. I once watched a show on Netflix. In fact, it wasn't too long ago um, where this kind of atheist guy tries to show and recreate a a faith healing ceremony. His name is Darren Brown and the show is called Miracle. And what he does is he gets people in this massive audience and, and he says through just manipulation and illusion that they are able to experience what they believe to be a spiritual encounter. But not even that, not only that, some of them report that they get to, their vision gets clearer. Now, a whole of things go on and he says, this is nothing to do with religion or spirituality or God. It's just manipulation, and the powers of suggestion. Now, I'm not saying God can't heal, but too often Christians have dressed up some sort of snake oil as a kind of salvation. You hear of pretend pastors healing people when all along there's just some radio in their ear and a team looking out for someone with some sort of psychosomatic illness or sitting a bit crooked with a sore back. If you get a chance, check out the movie The American Gospel. Right? It's a great expose of fiction dressed up as fact and called faith. But in the Bible, faith and truth are never separated. In fact, faith is always grounded in truth. Nowhere in the scriptures does God call us to believe in something that's not true, thinking that somehow belief in and of itself is helpful for us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is arguing that there is a bodily resurrection, that we will rise because Jesus rose from the dead. And he says to the people that he's speaking to at that point, if if you if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, then you're saying that all the witnesses that are still alive today, that saw him, that claimed that they'd seen him 25 years after Jesus' death were still saying they'd seen him rise from the dead. You're saying they're all liars. He's like, go and ask them, go and see. But then he says something even stronger. He says, if Jesus didn't rise, then your faith is worthless. If you believe Jesus did rise, but he actually didn't, You're not commended for the sincerity of your belief, saying, well done, you believed anyway. Paul says your faith is worthless. It's a waste of time and you should be pitied more than anyone else. See, belief in something that's not true is complete lunacy. But to doubt what is true is just as misguided. In John 20, 26, we hear this. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Over the three years he was with them before his death, Jesus had been showing them who he was. In John 8, 58, he said, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming to be in existence even before Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. In John 5, 23, Jesus said that all people may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. And anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. He's equating himself with God at that point. Or at the very start of John's Gospel, John recalls these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Finally, as Jesus walks into that locked room for the second time, and he sees Jesus with his own eyes, he sees that what Jesus had been saying all along was true. So Thomas responds in verse 28, My Lord and my God. (laughs) He's convinced because he has seen. But genuine faith is more than just believing true things. It's responding in light of those truths. See, Thomas doesn't just see Jesus as merely a God. There's definitely something divine about Jesus, but he's not just a God. Thomas's confession is, my God, this is my God. He looks at Jesus in the eyes and says, my Lord and my God. This is the moment that Thomas hopped off the throne of his own life. He stopped pretending to be God and making decisions kind of his way with his rules set up and recognized that Jesus was God. But not only God, his Lord as well. The one who calls the shots in his life, the one that he lived for. That's what it means to be the Lord, for someone to be the ruler of your life. Then Jesus in this very passage here, shifts from talking about the disciples there and then to you and me today. He says in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Now, he's not saying that we should have blind faith. He's anticipating the the next generation. See, the resurrection of Jesus is a one-time event. By very definition, it's not repeatable. It happened in first century Palestine. We can't recreate it. We can't make it happen today because it's something that has already happened. Just like the Holocaust or September 11 or the COVID-19 crisis of 2020, it's impossible to make the requirement of being there a necessary precondition to be able to believe that it happened. Generations will, will come and need to rely on the eyewitness testimony of all those things we've spoken of for the COVID-19 virus, for um, September 11, uh, for the Holocaust, and for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Historical events all rely on eyewitness testimony. That's why in a courtroom today, people's lives are determined what they'll do with the next 10, 20, 30 years based on the evidence of eyewitness testimony. Well, Jesus here anticipates that that will happen. And he anticipates you and me And our desire to want to see and believe. And what he says is that there will be ones who did see and who did believe. And for those that could not be there, the blessing comes through trusting in their testimony, the ones who were there. The irony is that Thomas's doubt secures our belief. Let me ask you today, what's stopping you from accepting the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done?
What's pulling you away from trusting Jesus? Is it a lack of evidence? And come and look. The amount of evidence that exists is overwhelming. Is it a thousand little decisions? Just pulling you away from what you once believed? Or is it possibly a preconceived defeat of belief that you hold that, that rules out even the possibility that this could be true? Today, we need to hear the testimony of history. Jesus died and rose again. And those that knew him best came to the conclusion that he is God and that he is their Lord. So John says in chapter 20, verse 31, with a purpose statement of the whole book. But these things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The disciples were convinced that life, real life, life that lasts is found nowhere else in the entire world other than trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, that he is both Lord and God. And to believe something that's not true, remember, it's utter lunacy, but to disbelieve something that is true is just as crazy. Seeing Jesus for who he really is turns fear into joy. It turns war into peace. It turns doubt into belief. But there's one more transition that you may not have seen in the first place that's just as important. Jesus turns the spectator into the star player. So far throughout the gospel story of John, the disciples had been spectators in the work of God, watching Jesus do his father's work from the sideline, sometimes being caught up in it, but really as spectators from the side. But after his death and resurrection, as Jesus breaks into the locked room and breaks into their fear and war, he makes one more transition for those that trust him. After proclaiming the peace Jesus has brought them, he says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What does it mean for Jesus to send them? What does it mean to be sent? So often in our world, we love to think about ourselves as the senders rather than the ones being sent. Our value and worth, it's often tied to becoming the one who leads, not the one who follows. But throughout the entire life of Jesus, the thing he keeps delighting in is not that he acts on his own accord as some independent man with independent thinking doing his own thing, but that everything he does and everything he says comes not from himself, but from the one who sent him. Have you noticed that? Have a look. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or look again at John 3, 34. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. Or John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, Jesus sees himself as the sent one. He's dependent on his father. Look at John 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? Jesus' purpose was to do the will of the one who sent him and to bring glory and honor to the one who sent him. 
Look at John 7 verse 18, if you weren't convinced already. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. See, Jesus is about the glory of the one who sent him. But not only that, there's this intimacy of, of trusting the one who sent him. Look at John 8, 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Jesus in all he says and all he does is dependent on his father who sent him. He's intimately involved with his father. He's working for his father's purpose and honor. Right? It's easy to miss how central being sent from the father is for Jesus. I think that's because we think of him as strong and powerful. Our picture of strong strength and power doesn't really fit with living for the purposes and plans of someone else. We don't like to be dependent or obedient or submissive to anyone. It just feels weak. I want to put it to you that our culture has messed us up. To think that strength, and power and greatness is found somewhere else than following the plan and purposes of another is to rob Jesus of the very thing that makes him strong and great and powerful in the first place. Jesus sees himself not as independent, but as dependent on the one who sent him. He was sent for a purpose, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to save a people into it. Now, Jesus says to the disciples in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's saying to the disciples, you are my sent ones. What I am to the Father is what you are to me. They're no longer servants, as Jesus said in John 15, but they are now friends of Jesus. I saved you and brought you into my heart and purpose to be intimately engaged and involved with my desires. Not just to do what I say, like a servant has to do, but to want to do what I'm sending you to do because you're with me, because you're my friends, because like the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Friends, if you trust the disciples' account of who Jesus is and what he has done, if you trust that Jesus is your Lord and your God, then you, like the disciples, have moved from being mere spectators of history to the star players in it. Not because of anything intrinsic that you and I have to offer, but because like Jesus, we've been sent, dependent on him, living for his plan and purpose and glory because he is God. And recognizing who he is moves us from fear to joy, from war to peace, from doubt to belief and from spectators to star players. So Jesus sends them and us to proclaim his forgiveness in the world. And people's response to that message, to the message of Jesus, will be God's response to them. Those who ask God for forgiveness will be forgiven. And those who reject God's forgiveness will remain at war with God. Friends, I hope you can see that being a follower of Jesus isn't merely believing something or maybe believing something contrary to the evidence. It's not even responding with joy to what God has done for us. No, it's also recognizing that we have been sent to use our lives in whatever way we can with whatever gifts and resources and time we've been given to get caught up in the plans and purposes and glory of the one who sent us. That's what it is to trust Jesus. I want to do a thought experiment with you just for a moment now. I want you to picture with me what the future could be like 
if we let this truth shape us as it did the disciples. Imagine constant streams of people coming to investigate Jesus because we've been praying for them, because we've invited them along. New churches springing up across Auckland, across New Zealand, filled with people who trust in Jesus, who have had the same experience that Thomas did, recognizing Jesus as their Lord and their God. Imagine what the future could be as we depend on God's Spirit to proclaim the gospel into His world. When you see who Jesus is, it changes everything. So friends, don't waste your life on anything else but living for the one who made you and who sent you for His purpose and for His glory. He changes us from fear to joy, from war to peace, from doubt to belief, and from spectators to star players. What an amazing joy it is to know Jesus as our Lord and our God. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, today as we have seen Jesus through the eyes of Thomas, we thank you so much that you show the realness of the people of the Bible, that they are broken and weak and feeble just like us. We admit that we have rejected you as our God. We've tried to play God and put ourselves on the throne, but we're so thankful that Jesus stepped into, into this world, that he died in our place and that he rose again so that we could see that he is the true and living God and our sins could be forgiven. Father, thank you so much for the joy of knowing you. And we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you'd move us all from fear of judgment to peace with you and one another and with ourselves. We ask you'd move us from war with God and you to peace. You'd move us from doubt to belief. And you'd move us from being spectators into star players that we might be sent by you into your world to proclaim the truth of Jesus. We're so thankful for the life you've offered us and we pray you would use us boldly to proclaim your kingdom for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.